have your Bibles, if you would open them to the book of James, chapter 1. James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, has written a sermon in the form of a letter to the believers who have moved away due to persecution. He does so with pastoral tones, which means pastoral exhortations. So we have, as we've seen, more imperatives, more commands in this book than we do any other book in Scripture, um, certainly in the New Testament. In a book that has 108 verses, there are 50 imperatives. And it's do this. His purpose is not so much to inform, um, I think this is important for us to see, but rather to command, to urge, and to encourage. James is telling his readers what to do. And yet there is a real tone of pastoral concern. He addresses the readers at least 15 times as either brothers or my dear brothers. So after a greeting, joy to you, he begins his letter, his sermon, with an imperative, a command. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. You'll notice he refers to them as my brothers, but he also gives them a command, an imperative, consider it pure joy. And what are we to consider pure joy whenever we fall, whenever we face trials of many kinds? Joy, as we've seen, is to be a present reality that is anchored in the past and looks to the future. We look to what God has done for his people in the past, what he's done for us in the past. And we anticipate what he will do for us in the future. This means that where we are at the present moment should not be our only focus, particularly if things are not going well. We need to be reminded of what God has done and what he has promised to do for us in the future. As I said last week, I think people tend to see joy as an emotion, um, something that just sort of stands alone, some feeling that you might have. Um, I think when we are done with the book of James, you will see that joy is in fact an activity. Uh, joy is the noun, rejoice is the verb, and we are to rejoice. And again, what are they con to consider pure joy? Whenever you face trials of many kinds. So again, as I mentioned, the word that James uses is the same one that Jesus used in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that a certain man went from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was ambushed by bandits. I think ambush is the right word here, because the trials that come into our lives are unexpected. Um, they're not what we anticipate, and they're all different kinds. There's not like just one category of trials. There are many different kinds. I think we are tempted to think, if I knew what the trial was and I could see it coming, I would know how to deal with it. But in reality, they ambush us. And as we will see, I hope today, in reality, we cannot stand alone. We are in need of God's wisdom. They ambush us because they don't come in the form that we expect. And they don't come from sources that we expect. I think that it is significant what James, that what James writes that follows is because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. You'll notice he says, you know. That is to say that the people to whom he is writing have in fact experienced trials 
And they have learned by experience that, in fact, it is a testing of their faith. Uh, someone mentioned last Sunday, the analogy could be of like going to a gym, of working out, that there's a stress, there's a tension of exercise, but it, it has benefits. It results in something good. In the same way, they have, in fact, endured, they've been ambushed, they've endured these things, and they have, well, they've become mature to a certain degree. The theme of trials carries through to verse number 19. Verses 2 through 11 deal with external trials. I think those are usually what we think of. And then verses 12 through 19 with internal trials that we usually think of as temptations, but the same word is used. Um, it is worth noting that the, the example that James uses of external trials has to do with material prosperity. It has to do with having or not having. In fact, we should look at this. Um, look at verse number nine. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Let's come back to the trial. What is a trial? It is, in fact, the testing of God's people. And again, I said this last week, I think we make the mistake of assuming that a trial is something that is difficult and painful. So that we see someone who's going through something like, oh, they're going through a trial, or their life has been filled with trials. Um, when in fact, what we find here is that you have the trial of being in humble circumstances of poverty, but you also have the trial of being rich. Um, it's interesting that, that James uses this contrast here uh, because he could have talked about having companionship or being lonely, being alone. Or he could have talked about having a long marriage or unexpected bereavement. He could have talked about the hope that you have and the hope being disappointed. Things don't turn out the way that you want. He could talk about having work, having a job, and being unemployed. That's not what he does, though. He talks about poverty and riches. There are many kinds of trials that really make up the tapestry of our lives. Marriage and singleness, fruitfulness and barrenness, health and illness. The list could go on and on. But what James points to has to do with material prosperity or the lack thereof. Both, in fact, are tests. They are trials. Will you trust God wherever he has put you, whatever your circumstances are? Will we, in fact, persevere? Will we, in fact, become more mature? How do we know what is the right thing to do? Just I'll come back to this later, but all things being equal, we would say that a person who is poor, um, we can see their life as a trial, as difficult. And a person who's rich, yeah, they don't really have a trial. They don't really, they're not being tested. 
I would say that in both cases, the question is, will you trust God? Will you trust God to provide? Or will you trust in your riches? We are rich. I think none of us here would want to say that we are rich, but when you compare us to much of the world today and to most human beings that have lived on this planet, we are really well-to-do. Do we trust in that or do we trust in God? Verses 12 through 19 deal with the internal struggles. And the same circumstance that is a test to see if we are going to go forward can also be a temptation to go back, to trust what we think to be right. So in that sense, every trial may become a temptation. That's really important. It all has the potential of becoming a temptation. We need to recognize that there is something within us. We can't blame God. He'll make this very clear. There's something within us that can take a test or a trial and turn it into a temptation. A temptation to turn away from God. So we have to ask ourselves, will we go with God? Or will we do what we think is best? There's a little voice in us that says, this is what you should do. And James says, you know what? That voice isn't from God. If the voice says to turn away from God, you can be sure that it doesn't come from God. God does not tempt us. God tests us. And that test can become a temptation because of what is in our hearts. So the test comes from God, but the responsibility of how we respond lies with us. Either we will walk in obedience or we will choose to be disloyal. We will choose to disobey because we think we know better than God. It's interesting, he talks about the external test or trials and the internal. But after each one, he gives this wonderful promise. If you look at verse number 12, this is after the external, the things that come. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Just as trials of many kinds test our faith and develop perseverance, which results in maturity and completeness, in the same way we, if we endure, if we persevere, we will be fulfilled. The blessing is not being delivered from the trial. If you obey God, you will be delivered from the trial. No, in fact, a person whose trial is poverty may live their entire life in poverty. The blessing is not being delivered. Oh, I trusted God and then he gave me riches. No. The blessing is, in fact, that we have a sense of fulfillment. That we become the people that God wants us to be. There's a future reward, the crown of life. A crown, for us, has you know, many implications, but let's look at what Scripture says. It is a, di- a sign of position, that is, of royalty. It is a sign of gladness, 
It's not usually something we think of, but in 1 Thessalonians 2, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory? In the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So Paul's like, Thessalonians, you are a crown for me. You are a symbol of joy that I have because you have followed in the faith. It's also a sign of victory. If you won an uh, Olympic competition, you were given a crown. It is the prize at the end of the race. Paul, near the end of his life, tells his son in the faith, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. And then, of course, in the book of Revelation, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. It's all wonderful. But go back to James, and and what does it say in verse number 12? Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to him. Is that what it says? No. He has promised to those who love him. It isn't like, I endured, I held on for dear life through all the trials. It is in the midst of the testing that in fact we continue to love God. Okay. All of life, when everything is said and done, what James has written, all of life is a trial externally and internally. By the way, he also has wonderful promises after the internal. Look, if you would, at verse number 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Again, the pastoral affection. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits to all he created. My dear brothers, he says, don't be deceived. And he goes on to say that if we lack wisdom, we will see this in a bit, we should ask a giving God because he is the one who gives every good and perfect gift. Verse number 17. It is interesting here that God is called Father. This is fleshed out in verse number 18. He's the Father of the heavenly lights. He is the one who gave us life. What does it mean that he's the father of heavenly lights? Well, Paul wrote to, to the Corinthians in his second letter, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That is, Satan has blinded a generation. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In the same way that God said in the beginning, let there be light, and there was light. He also said, let there be light in our lives, and he opened our eyes to see the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. In creation, he is there. In our redemption, he is there. He is the giving God. 
This is a theme here in this section on trials. We might think, well, he's actually God is kind of cruel. He keeps giving us all these tests. No, he is a giving God. So we go back to verse number five. And this is where actually I want to start the sermon in verse number five. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all who without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Now, let's be very clear about something. The thing mentioned to us that we're lacking is wisdom. If we lack wisdom, we should ask God. It isn't if you lack anything, you should ask God. Jesus said that we should ask in his name. But here, James is talking about the fact that if we lack wisdom, he doesn't say if you lack anything, he should ask God and God will give it to him. Some people have left the faith because they felt that, well, no, I asked God and he didn't give this to me. Um, therefore, either he's a liar or he really doesn't love me. If we lack wisdom, we should ask God. Well, what is wisdom? Wisdom is mentioned here and then it is mentioned in chapter three. And if you would look at chapter three for a moment, uh, Several verses there, uh, beginning in verse number 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly unspiritual of the devil for where you have envy and selfish ambition there you find disorder and every evil practice but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace loving considerate submissive full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness so what does James mean when he's talking about wisdom? That's interesting. Uh, when we were looking at what is joy and what is a trial, we saw that joy is not the same thing as happiness or being happy. Okay? And trial is not the same thing as suffering. But if you were, in fact, to ask someone what is wisdom, they would probably say to you, yeah, it's not the same thing as knowledge. That is, if somebody is smart, they aren't necessarily wise, okay? If someone is brilliant, intelligent, that doesn't necessarily mean they're wise. So, with joy, you can have joy, but not be happy. And with trial, you could, in fact, be going through a trial and not be suffering. But when it comes to wisdom, yeah, we don't think, you know, read all these books upstairs and you'll be wise. No, you'll have knowledge, but it's not necessarily the same thing as wisdom. I think a key verse to understand what James is saying here is found at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus talked quite a bit about wisdom in his parables. Um, at the end of the talking about the destruction of the temple, in this is Matthew 24, 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Who's a wise servant? Whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. So the wise one is the one who knows the master is coming back and he does what he's supposed to do until the master comes back. At the end of his teaching ministry in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gave the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took the wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. So we see that wisdom is presented as those who do what they're supposed to do. In the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, they've heard the words of Jesus, they put them into practice. It's someone who is prepared in the face of the returning master. But it's also someone who is prepared, like the five wise virgins. They, it's not enough to bring a lamp. You need to bring some oil in case the bridegroom is delayed. James and his readers are familiar with the teachings of Jesus. Um, I think they're also familiar with what the Old Testament says about wisdom. The Old Testament has plenty to say about it. In fact, there are three entire books that are dedicated to the subject of wisdom. The book of Job, book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes. And as you can imagine, they tell us different things about wisdom. It's multifaceted. So what does the Old Testament tell us about wisdom and how does it use the word or the idea? For the wisdom books, wisdom is a life skill. It is the ability to live your life as you should, okay? In the best possible way to the best possible effect. I think that makes sense to us. We would agree with such a view of wisdom. But let's stop and think a minute. Go back to James. If everything is a test, it's not just when things are getting rough. If everything is a test, every day, every event is a test, how am I supposed to keep up? How, how am I supposed to keep up? You know, in teaching, you know, there's a test to see if people have learned things, and that's usually what we think of a test. But James basically is saying, it's all a test. It's all a test. You can't turn around without being tested. What is one to do? How are you supposed to know what you're supposed to do? In a word, wisdom. You are to have wisdom. But how do you get that wisdom? James tells us, ask God. Do you lack wisdom if you're like, okay, this is a test right now, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do. If you lack anything, if you lack wisdom, ask God. And he gives generously. By the way, a side note, if you read the wisdom literature, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the underlying foundation is that God is the creator. If you take out God as a creator, then the wisdom books, they don't, it doesn't work. And the thing is, God made the world. 
He made us. He knows what is best. So if we lack wisdom, if we're like, okay, I used to be poor, and that was a test, and I trusted God, and now I'm, I'm not poor anymore. How is it that I'm to continue to trust God now that I'm not poor anymore? We are to ask God. We need to understand that there are things which are beyond us, that life is filled with mystery. But God knows all things, and we are to look to him. In the wisdom books, we find that there is a principle, and that is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job 28, 28, and he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. In Proverbs, first chapter, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The message by Eugene Peterson, his translation of the Bible, says, start with God. The first step is learning. The first step in learning is bowing down to God. Only fools thumb their noses at such wisdom and learning. Starts with God. And then at the end of Ecclesiastes. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. You might say that's all wonderful. But Damon, what does it mean the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Let's, let's take the second part first, the beginning of wisdom, then we'll look at the fear of the Lord. When it says the beginning of wisdom, we shouldn't un understand it to mean the starting point. Okay? Rather, as one author put it, what the alphabet is to reading, notes to the reading of music, and numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book. So in the same way that you can't do math if you don't know numbers, you can't do music, I guess you could, but you can't read music if you don't know the notes. Um, you can't read without the letters, without the alphabet. In the same way, one cannot be wise without the fear of the Lord. I think most people, when they read this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, they really focus on fear, and it throws them, because it just, it, it doesn't sound right. I'm supposed to be afraid of God? Um, if you go through the book of Proverbs, one of the wisdom books, you will find that the focus on wisdom deals with relationship. In Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It isn't, oh, I know that there's one God. I know that God is Trinity. I know these things. No, it is, in fact, that you are in relationship with God. God is our master. He is our Lord, and we are his servants. He is the creator. We are his creatures. That is the relationship. And part of that relationship means that we are to be humble. We are to be marked by humility. 
So if you read the book of Proverbs, you find that the fear of the Lord, wisdom and humility, all three are tied together. Proverbs 11, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. In chapter 15, wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord and humility comes before honor. Perhaps it's most clearly spelled out, Proverbs 22, 4. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor in life. So humility and the fear of the Lord. And again, what does it mean to be humble? It's to recognize who we are. He is the creator, we are the creatures. He is the Lord, we are his servants. What James tells us, if we recognize that we lack something, we should go to the one who gives, and he will give us generously. It isn't simply that we are to ask God, but we are to shun evil. We saw this in chapter 3, but it's interesting, the book of Job opens with this description of this man. This is the very first verse. In the land of Uz, there was a man, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 3. James tells his readers that God is not only the source of wisdom, he is the giving God who gives generously. So in the relationship, God is set. God is good, God is giving, he is generous. Okay, let's look at our side of the equation. By the way, in verse number 17, he, he's not like shifting shadows. Um, Guy and I, in the past, have on our walks, at certain times of the day, we see the shadow, the silhouette of a tree against the side of a building, and we wish that we could draw it. But the sun moves, and, and so the shadow... It's not there anymore. That's not the way God is. God is constant. Okay? So, if we ask, if we lack wisdom, we should ask God. But let's keep looking. Look at verse number 6 in James 1. But when he asks, the one who's asking for wisdom, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. While God's part of the equation is set, he is generous, he is giving, um, his sincerity is unquestioned. We, on the other hand, we're we're in trouble. He brings up two issues, and that is of doubt and being double-minded. Is doubt and being double-minded the same thing? I would say yes and no. To doubt means to believe and to disbelieve at the same time. I think people think, Okay, you can either believe, or you cannot believe it, or you can doubt. But when you doubt is when you believe and you disbelieve at the same time. 
the story of, of the man whose son was demon-possessed. And Jesus said, do you believe I can heal him? And he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Okay, so I believe, but I'm not believing at the same time. That's what doubt is. Being double-minded, I think, is like that. But I think being double-minded also speaks of how we act. Are we going to act consistently in faith? Are we going to have one foot here and one foot over here? I'm going to trust God, but I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to choose to do what I want, and I'll, I'll trust what God wants. I'll do the same, the two things at the same time. Jesus talked about you can't serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Double-minded is a word in Greek that James may have in fact created, but it's, as we saw when we began our study in James, is a concept that goes back to the book of Psalms. It's not the same, by the way, in English we talk about someone being two-faced. No, that's, that's, that's hypocrisy, okay? This is quite different. It means, in fact, that we are facing two ways. On the one hand, we believe that God exists and we act accordingly. On the other hand, we act as though God does not exist. Belief is living as though God exists. Unbelief is living and acting as though he does not exist. The phrase that is used is being a practical atheist. In our practice, in what we do, we're atheists. If we do not look to him, if we do not act in belief. Question, is it possible not to doubt? Is it possible not to doubt? Maybe because of where we live now in human history, the question should be, is it possible to have perfect faith? Is it possible to have faith without unbelief? And the answer is no, we're human beings. We live in a fallen world and by nature we, we are double-minded. By nature, we are those who tend to doubt. By the way, we're not capable of doing anything perfectly. Just in case you wanted to know. Emily Dickinson wrote something near the end of her life. On subjects of which we know nothing, or should I say beings, we both believe and disbelieve a hundred times an hour which keeps believing nimble. We sort of go back and forth. I believe, I don't believe, I believe, I don't believe. A hundred times an hour. God gives generously. God is constant. He's not like shadows. We, on the other hand, we tend to be like waves that the wind blows. Some have preached that if you have enough faith, you can get whatever it is that you want. I always find it interesting that people don't say, if you have enough faith, you can mature as a believer. Yeah, who wants that? You know that. Jesus said, if you had the seed the size of a mustard seed, if you had faith 
the size of a mustard seed. You could move mountains. The amount of our faith is not the issue. I want to be careful here. And the quality of our faith is not the issue. I want to be even more careful as I say that. The issue here is asking God for wisdom. Rather than trying to serve two masters, we serve one master. We look to him and say, Master, what should I do? What is living in belief look like? If you're poor, you trust God that he will provide. If you're rich, what does that look like? God has provided. I'm set. We look to God and ask for wisdom. If we don't try to abandon the double-mindedness, the being in doubt, well, James tells us that two things happen. Our prayer lives are impaired and we are unstable in all that we do. Jesus said, you can't have two masters. And it's fascinating that he also talked about material things. You cannot serve God and money. So the book of James is written to people who may have actually heard Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. They certainly heard this from the apostles. Can't serve two masters, you have to choose one. Could it be that James and his readers, as they read this, are thinking about the incident when the rich young man came to Jesus and Jesus said, sell all that you have. And then we hear Jesus saying, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Or maybe they were thinking, maybe James was thinking of the parable of the sower, the seed that fell on thorny ground, the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it and make it unfruitful. Belief and unbelief, being a friend of God and being a friend of the world. The wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world. But again, the nagging question remains, how does one get wisdom? And James tells us, because he recognizes we lack wisdom, that we are to ask from God. Wisdom comes from heaven. In chapter 3, we read a few moments ago, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life. It's by his actions. By deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. How do you get wisdom? By asking God. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ended by contrasting the wise man with the foolish man. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the, a wise man who has built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations in the rock on the rock 
But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The people to whom James writes this letter have heard the words of Jesus, either directly, they were there when he first spoke them, or they heard them from the apostles. They have heard the words of Jesus. The question is, are they putting it into practice? And that's what the book of James is about. I am convinced that the book of James is written to people who knew scripture, the Old Testament, who had heard Jesus, who had heard the apostles. They could pass a theological test. They could answer the questions, but they're not living like they should. And I think that is the question for each of us. We may know the truth, but are we living the truth? And how do you know what is the right thing to do? You're in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a test. And by the way, everything is a test. So at every moment, we should be asking, we should be asking God, wisdom. I need wisdom. I need to know what is the right thing to do. And you know what? God gives generously. And so we should ask him. Let's pray together. Our Father, so often we are like children who as they learn and as they grow begin to want a sense of independence to be able to make their own decisions that they know well enough. We are your children. You are our Father. But we will always need wisdom from you. In the difficult days, we certainly feel our need of wisdom. And we look to you. We cry out to you. But on the good days, on the easy days, the delightful days, we may forget that we need your wisdom then as well. Perhaps even more because we we are tempted to think we don't need you. Whereas when we're in need, we absolutely know we need you. I thank you that you are constant. You are faithful. You are generous. And we are always to look to you. Because in a real sense, we always lack wisdom. As we go through our lives, as we face various circumstances, various individuals, different tests that ambush us. We always need you and your wisdom. We have heard your word. By your grace, may we put it into practice. Thank you for bringing us together today in this stormy day. Pray for safety for each one as they go home. For those who are at home, you would keep them safe as well. And as we walk through the world in this week, 
May we look to you moment by moment for your wisdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.